So we're in Luke chapter 7. Now, if you'll remember, as we were going through the last couple chapters, God began to set Jesus, began to set himself apart, all right, from the norm, from the regular, from the religiosity. He wasn't setting apart himself from the Jews. He himself was a Jew. But he was setting himself apart from what the Jews had become. Listen, they were bad people. Nobody said that, okay? Their ways had just moved away from the heart of his ways. And so he began to teach that with his lips, right? He began to say things like, uh, you see things like here on earth, but I need you to see things like the kingdom sees things. You have heard it said, but I say, all right? Listen, hear these words of mine, all right? And put them into practice, all right? He came to teach a baptism of repentance, right? A, a change, a turning away from. Now in chapter 7, although he's done it a little bit, he really begins to, and Jesus always walks his talk, but in the stories, if you see the storyline, and a lot of times that's what we miss by bouncing from story to story in the scripture or verse to verse instead of walking through, we miss what's really happening. Jesus goes from saying it to doing it. And you could say, well, he always did it. No, when you understand the people that he's running into, you understand it more, all right? This story also appears in Matthew. We've talked about that. There are three synoptic gospels and they run parallel. And there's all a lot that's in Mark, that's in Matthew, that's in Mark, that's in Luke, and that's in Luke, that's in Matthew. Partially because they were covering the same Jesus. Partially because they were written around the same time. Partially because they used some of the same sources but mostly because Mark was written first and Luke and Matthew used Mark and expounded on it. Matthew was there. Luke went back and studied everything and was speaking way more to the Gentile nation, to the people who were not Jewish than he was to the Jewish people, whereas Matthew was speaking directly to the Jewish people. In the story, Jesus actually meets this individual. But as Luke went back and recounted all of these things, in Luke's tale, he does not. And that in and of itself is a huge part of today's message. This gentleman that we meet, all right, actually never comes in contact with Jesus during this story. That is important. Let's read. Let's get some geographical and historical context. And then let's talk about what that means to us. We are in chapter 7. We are starting in verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying this, you notice that the verse actually says what I just said. Jesus is going to stop the talk and start the walk, all right? Doesn't mean when we do that, we need to change our ways, okay? Jesus is just transitioning a little bit. He entered Capernaum, where he did a lot of his ministry. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and was about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders, sent some elders, sent some elders of the Jews to him asking him to come and to heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogues. So Jesus with, with them, he was not far from the house when the centurion sent people to say, 
don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I do not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word. Now listen to me. But say the word. And there is more to this than distance. There is more to this than simple faith. There is an underlying understanding here that only exists between the centurion and Jesus. I want to explain that. That's the nugget that I grabbed over the last two weeks that I did not know before. And it comes right here. Say the word and my servant will be healed. We all believe that, right? We believe that if Jesus speaks, it'll happen. For I myself, Listen, I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does that. When Jesus heard this, <laughs> when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd following him. Now remember, the crowd following him had been building and building and building. And it was mostly all of the Jewish people from the small towns who were following him place to place and a couple sections or sects of zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees, three very different groups of people, all right? And they were mocking, mimicking, and the word used in Mark is muttering about Jesus. Let the plotting begin. Jesus turns to them all and said, I tell you the truth, and this is, this is rough. I tell you the truth, I have not found such great faith. He doesn't say in all of Israel. He says, even in Israel. Who's he saying it to? The people who have gotten up early in the morning, walked through the desert, followed him to the sea, seen him in the rain, listened to him on the mountain, listened to him on the plain, endured hours and hours of servants, watched him heal, told people about his healings. And he turns to them and says, what? I have not experienced faith like this yet from anyone, including you. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant. Well, found the servant. Well, let's talk a little bit about centurions. Centurions, century, meaning what? One hundred. A man in command of a hundred men. That is the story. It is semi-accurate, okay? Here's how it worked, all right? You had Caesar, all right? And, and Caesar was over all of Rome, all right? And, and you have Augustus and, and, and Tiberius, all right, but down where Jesus was, the governor or king or ruler over the region was Herod Antipas, okay, and he was over them, and so the centurions 
would then be over different sections of the army in different sections of the community. So president, governors, mayors, and those who enforced the law of those, all right? It would be something like captain or major in our armies now. But by the numbers, it would have been approximately 80 to 90 soldiers that this particular centurion would have been under on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. I've described this area to you in the last four to five weeks when we learned about Levi, the tax collector, and the route that Levi had being a route by sea, how Levi had made his money because he was on a very popular trade route. Well, the centurion in charge of the north end of the Sea of Galilee would have been in charge of making sure that everything in that region went peacefully. So when the tax collectors moved in to the Jewish culture and began to be different from what they grew up with, when people like Levi got their job and did their job, but they were hated and people started to talk, the soldiers were to keep things calm, keep the peace. If the traffic got jammed up and the trade route wasn't moving, it would come down from Rome to Herod, Herod, to the centurion, and he would have to take care of it. This particular centurion was known for doing an unbelievable job. He was very good at his job. He was incredibly well respected, and he knew how to play the politic game. How do I know? He has helped to build what? Our synagogues. We know that this guy is not Jewish. We also know that he has learned to use the power, the authority, and the financial resources that he has acquired where he is to have an extraordinarily peaceful region that runs incredibly efficiently. And he does that by making sure that the zealots who are trying to cause an uproar and, 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 and discord among the Jews to return to their older roots. And then there's this fellow over here and we're hearing about him, but faith healers come and go. We've heard about a ton of them, but there's a new guy in town. And to be honest, he hasn't caused me any trouble. I mean... There's a guy that used to be out here named Levi that I saw every day, respected him, smart guy. And he up one day and just cut ties with all of it and went and followed this dude. I've run into him a couple times since, and all he tells me is that it's worth it. That's what this guy knew. He knew he was good at his job. He knew that even though the Jewish leaders didn't respect him, wouldn't come into his house, because he was a Gentile, he was unclean, they liked him, they met with him, they worked with him. He helped them, they helped him. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So this is the, the power held by this man, and this is the region where he worked, where Jesus was doing his teaching and traveling, and all of the things that we've read about over the last six chapters have occurred with him looking from a distance, right? He's hearing without hearing, seeing without seeing. He's keeping the peace among the religious leaders. He's giving and taking as is necessary, and both sides respect the other. Now imagine, if you will, um, the, the town council. So we need to bring in the Jewish elders. They need to be here. 
Uh, we need to bring in some of the zealots. They, they need to be here. We'll have a couple of soldiers to keep the peace. We'll do this outside. Nobody has to come into my house. And, and this centurion, with his shoulders back and his heads up, is presiding over this meeting as these people are speaking, right? And a, a servant comes into the meeting and, and whispers in his ear, right? And his face goes pale. He does his best to keep his shoulders back and his chin up and to pay attention to the meeting, but he's, he's been in this post for a prolonged period of time because he's done quite the job. And the leaders begin to recognize his distress. And so they ask of him, what, what news did you get? Who, who spoke to you? What happened? And he explains to them that one of his trusted servants, not, not just a servant, a guy that's been with him by his side for 10, 15, 20 years. They've done battle with. That was one of the differences, too, between a centurion and, and other Roman leaders. Not only was a centurion one who watched over, they were always the first one into battle. So they were known for being strong physically and emotionally and mentally. And so they'd probably fought alongside one another, or he had probably cared for his children, cared for his wife when he was in battle. This was a dear, dear friend, a part of this man's extended family. And he had re just received news, not just that he was ill, but that he was dying. And so the Jewish leaders, wanting to help, but not knowing how, asked if there was anything they could do. And they, they, could, they could not. But maybe this one guy, maybe this one young guy in the back who didn't quite have all that, all that uh, uh, Bible background in him simply says, hey, what about the healer? I mean, let's get real. There's a guy running around here healing, healing people like, like crazy. And the centurion knows. You know what I think triggered him in the back of his mind? I think he thought about Matthew, Levi. And I think he remembers the, the words. Man, it's worth it. I saw this video about three weeks ago. This is what hit me so hard. He's... He sends, right, in the scripture, he, he sends um, some, uh, the, some elders of the Jews to him. He knows that being in the presence of the Gentiles is part of their law. He does not yet know that Jesus could care less, right? Jesus doesn't care about the cleanliness and the uncleanliness, about the black or the white or the red or the green or the Jew or the Gentile. He doesn't care. But when we live in this culture, he has followed the culture well. So he sends some of the Jewish elders, the people he built the synagogues for, he says, would you go and ask Jesus on my behalf? And then he speaks to servants. Servants take his words to elders, and elders do. Do they do because the servant said so? Think about it. Think about what's happening here. They don't go because the servant said go. Why do they go? Because the centurion told the servants to go. And because the centurion's word came to the servant and their word went to the Jews, they did. When Rome says go, this centurion jumps, even if it doesn't come from Rome, if it comes down the line. What is that? That is the power of authority. Remember when we talked about that? I think that's what happened. 
I think Jesus in his humanity and Jesus in his divinity had another moment. This man who believed enough in me to say to a servant of his who does not believe in me, go ask him to speak the word. And I think when it came out of his mouth, the centurion realized the power of the spoken word of one with authority. And I think it overwhelmed him. So when that went to the servant, and the servant got to Jesus, and he says, my master says, I don't have to believe it. My master says, and I speak for him. My master says that if you speak, it's going to happen. And I think Jesus is overwhelmed because Jesus is the only one there who knows that he doesn't just command this world. He has command over life and death. He has authority over sickness, over judgment, over joy, over pain. And he roars up inside him that even one who doesn't listen understands who he is. Authority is granted and authority is reciprocated. One runs through the kingdom of this world. The other runs through the kingdom that is not. And when he sends back, oh, you can take your verbal words back to the house if you want to. But it's already done. And you know what I love about this? Only one set of people knows that the miracle has occurred for about the 20 minutes it would have taken them to get back home. The centurion sitting by the bedside. And there's never a conversation, right? There's never a meeting, right? He's just sitting there holding the hand of a man who is near death. When that man looks over and says, What's up, brother? And he squeezes his hand. And for 15 minutes, there was nothing on this earth that made that happen. It was all, sorry for the phrase, out of this world. Come on. That's fun. That is good stuff. And so, why does Jesus use the words faith in this passage? What is it that creates the faith, all right? We have to begin to understand that believing, listen to me, believing is not enough. Well, Craig, I'm supposed to believe in God and that gets me in heaven. I'm going to say this again. Believing is not enough. If you're right that believing is enough and I am wrong, then the demons will return to heaven. Oh, even the demons believe and tremble when he steps his foot out off of the sea and the legion feels his presence from the caves and the caverns and the naked man who is chained comes out. What do you want with us, son of the most high God? Even the demons believe it's not enough. Something must set you apart from your belief. 
What was it that the centurion did? The centurion risked his authority. If I pass this to you and you pass this to him, he passes it back to you, you pass it back to him, everybody in the chain becomes unfaithful if this doesn't go through. Right? But his words, listen to his words. Lord, don't trouble yourself. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I understand the culture of the people from where you came. And I think Jesus wanted to say, love my people, not quite yet my people. Don't you think if he looked down on a lot of churches today, that's what he'd say? Love my people, but um, not quite yet my people. I mean, think about the things that we do. Think about the religion in our hearts. Think about the, the disparity between us. Think about the negativity. Think about the judgment. Think about the wrath that we carry out on one another because we don't lay the carpet correctly or because we don't speak to somebody correctly or because we do this instead of this. Why are churches are dying everywhere? My people, but not my people. Right? I'm not saying anything out of turn. Jesus is about to spin around and say it himself. Right? Let's get real about the gospel. This man throws his heart out there from Garrett County and says, I'm not worthy to have you in my home. I am a, I'm, a, I'm a big deal, but I'm not worthy to have you in my home. I do not consider myself worthy, but say the word. Do in your kingdom what I do in mine, and it will happen, Captain. He doesn't question. He doesn't ask. Do you see the difference? But say the word, and my servant will be healed. There's no question mark. There's no buts. There's no ifs. When you believe that you understand what God is doing and what God is saying, you obey without punctuation. You just obey. And Jesus heard this and was amazed. Ooh, how often does that happen? How often does that happen? When do, when do, you, how often do you read Jesus was amazed? Wow! I mean, how do you, how, how do you wow Jesus? I mean, that's God in the flesh. But Jesus goes, wow! I want to be in that brother's house. And later, we're going to see Jesus be like, I ain't doing these wall things anymore. Well, he's going to, this chapter is full of this. I wanted to do all three. I can't. It's going to be three weeks. Centurion, widow, all right? And then all Simon. Mm -mm -mm -mm. It's going to be fun, y'all. But here's where the faith comes in. I put my words out there, knowing. You can know the stool's going to hold you up, but there is no faith till you sit. He could have known Jesus could have healed, but there was no faith until he sent. He used his authority to allow God to use his. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found him well. 
And I believe, I believe with all my heart that the centurion spent the next few days, weeks, months, or even years in a mental, spiritual, and emotional debacle. But I know this. He did more than believe in this man called Jesus. So this morning, church, my question to you is, do you believe? Well, Craig, that was easy. Of course we do. Will you do more? Are we a church family that will more than believe? Are we the kind of place that when people talk about us, they go, they do more than just believe. They do more than sing. They do more than gather. They do more than, 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 than unite in a little ball, in a little cauldron, in a little corner. They do more. Their faith is expressed outside the walls. Will you go? Will we go beyond our centered selves and put our, our belief on the line in faith for our friends, for our family, for our church, and for the homeless, the broken, the sinner, the lost, the hurting, the orphan, the widow. Will your faith become action at great risk to your person? I can't answer this. But I can tell you this secret from the bottom of my heart. I would love to make Jesus say, God, generally, we're begging of you or thanking you for wowing us. Today, God, we pray together, begging you to create in us the kind of faith and to pull from us the kind of faith in action that causes God to be amazed. Do that in Owen. Do that in Eva. Do that in Luke. Do that in Kyra. God, do that in us. Make our faith so strong in you, not in ourselves, in you, that by your power, by your strength, by your might, by your will, with your self-discipline, with your love, we overcome. And God says, we ask these things in Jesus' name, and amen. We're going to have a coffee and covenant this week for anybody who's here for this service or coming before the next service. It'll go from about 10.15 to about 10.45, and then we will have coffee and covenant again next week because everybody's in this every other week pattern of showing up, and we want to make sure we hit everybody, all right? So thank you for being with us. We love you. God bless you, and have a beautiful Sunday. Bye-bye.